Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. With us today is Dr. Rebecca Wynn well-known CISO and Chief Privacy Officer, and we're here today to talk about the post-COVID aftermath and the impacts for 2021. Rebecca, thanks so much for coming out to the ranch. Thanks, Alan. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. First, a brief word about our sponsor. Time is the enemy of cybersecurity. Time spent identifying devices that are missing endpoint agents with known vulnerabilities that are unmanaged, that need updates. Time spent identifying cloud instances that aren't being scanned, that are misconfigured. Time spent gathering asset data, Time is the enemy of cybersecurity, until Axonius. By connecting to existing data sources, customers get a comprehensive asset inventory, understand security gaps, and automatically validate and enforce security policies. Thank you, Axonius, for sponsoring this show. So before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've done for a living in InfoSec? Well, in 2017, I was named Cybersecurity Professional of the Year. That was the Cybersecurity Excellence Awards. For SE Magazine, I've been given the Chief Privacy Officer Award, Global Privacy Security by Design. I'm an International Council member, Women in Technology Business Role Model of the Year. Most laud me as a a game changer who's 10 steps ahead. And most people see me as a polymath because I really have subject matter experts in a lot of different areas. And that was really seen when I took LearnVest through its pre-acquisition, acquisition, acquisition, post-acquisition to Northwestern Mutual, which is a Fortune 100 company. And then I do a lot of writing and I do a lot of podcasts and, you know, I have a book that's going to be coming out here in the future. So I don't like just to keep myself busy and, and pay it forward in the industry. We're in full agreement on paying it forward. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to share with the listeners our trials and tribulations over the last year. So we're here today to talk a little bit about you and I had, had a previous conversation about getting through COVID and all the various and sundry things we had to do to get large businesses through COVID. And I know that you and I both have consulted with any number of companies over the last you know couple of years here and know a lot of other CISOs and talk to a lot of other folks. So I thought between us, we probably have a, a wealth of experiences we can draw on. So I thought first, why don't you summarize for us the challenge that was actually represented by COVID, the impact of the workforce, the supply chain, et cetera, like what did COVID do to InfoSec? Uh, well, it did a lot. I think one of the things is that we had to move workforces very quickly at home. And, and personally, I, I had to move 10,000 people at home. And one thing people forget about is that means that you have 10,000 satellite offices. So when you think about that, you have to move people at home besides having to move equipment home and thinking about bandwidth. Depends on where you are globally over in the world, not just the United States. Sometimes you might be in a dorm setting. Sometimes you might have multiple families living in an area very short. And so one thing is I tell people, what is a trusted person in your home? What does it even look like? And then if you're dealing stuff where maybe the person's from a call center background, or maybe they're just dealing with sensitive information for a client, maybe they're dealing with credit card information, maybe they're dealing with health card information, maybe they're dealing with your corporate sense information. How do you go about protecting that and making sure only the right eyes are on that? That was really challenging that way. And then as you looked at global regulations, here in the United States, we would have stuff like FedRAMP from the government. I mentioned HIPAA. In Canada, you might have PAPITA. You might end up having some other global regulations like that. So really, it was a really challenge. And what we saw globally is people kind of taking a, a light look. We saw that with Department of Human Services, where they said, hey, if you go ahead and you use 
stuff like Microsoft, who we know have a check against their compliance on that, we're going to go ahead and let you continue to use that because people didn't see that it was going to last maybe three to four months. But now that we've seen it, that it's lasted a long period of time, what we're seeing is people are coming back and you see GDPR and CCPA and a lot of those other regulations come back and starting to find people and they're going to have to go back and get assessments done. So in your plot, in your supply chain, you really need to go and do complete assessments of the companies that you gave the allow them to have more risk to go ahead and see where they really are on their compliance. And what I really recommend to the people I consult with, look at their, if they're doing PCI, look at your report of compliance. It's about a 200 to 250 page report. It will go ahead and show you everything that was checked and how it was checked, what level of compliance they were at. Make sure you go ahead and you say, hey, do you have a corrective action plan? What does that look like? Make sure you do that. Do that for every single one of those. If it's a SOC 2, read every single page. If you did have somebody who's in healthcare and they did high trust, do the same thing. Read that full report. Look at the scope, what was tested, how it was tested, because you're going to probably find out from a third-party risk management, you're carrying probably a lot more risks than you were willing to, to take on maybe back you know nine months ago. I'm with you there. And it's interesting, too, because in my career, I've, I've bounced back and forth from CISO practitioner to uh, vendor CISO to practitioner to vendor to some hybrid role of both. And it's always interesting to me when these kinds of conversations come up. I've lived on both sides of that equation. I've been the one grilling the vendors with the PCI uh, report, and I've been the one receiving that grilling. And it's interesting to me that with COVID, the entire universe, it seems like, got unsettled. Like, bi-directionally, I was concerned. I was being asked lots more questions than I used to be asked, and I was asking lots more questions than I used to ask. And I think that there was a definite unsettling there for everybody. And it was interesting to me to talk to other CISOs and, and companies I consulted with and to hear about clients and, and customers who basically just refused to acknowledge that their vendor supply chain had made this radical shift to work from home. And we're trying to get people to stay in the office at vendor companies, right? Like going to their supply chain and saying, no, 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 you can't have your people work from home. There was actually some of that going on, which was shocking to me. But I think for the most part, you've outlined all these challenges. I think everyone faced them. And I think for the most part, the world had to make that adjustment. And it's interesting to see what really spilled out. Now, let's talk a little bit about the architecture for the solution. Obviously, zero trust was kind of a play here. What else was it besides zero trust? What did you do? You know, you've presented the challenges and you've talked about the certification and analysis at, you know, at sort of the certification level with PCI and high trust, et cetera. But let's talk about the tech stack for a little bit here. What's the architecture for the solution? Well, you mentioned zero trust. And one thing with the zero trust is that you had to know what your architecture looked like. What, where was your IT asset management? What was running on your systems? What someone would use for multi-factor authentication, their phone or something like that, before you do zero trust. So a lot of companies who are even thinking about zero trust, it's not like a one and done. Unless you're a smaller company, you can do it a lot easier. So being able to move zero trust, even though that was ideal, companies can't. And one of the reasons is it really showed how much their IT asset management was not in play. I, I've talked to so many companies on there. It's like, where are your systems? Where are they geolocated? What's their patch status? What's the software it's running on them? Who has access to what? Should they have access to what? And they really did not know. And I'm like, it just really showed how much that was really bad. And if you don't have that in play, you can't go to zero trust because you don't even know what's out there. So one of the things was, is that when, when people ask me like, well, how can we get two-factor authentication in? 
Well, yeah, you need to be able to do that. And maybe you do a single sign-on. But here's the other thing when people had things at home. If you didn't have some sort of proxy log, how do you know that a person wasn't connecting their printer? How do you know that they weren't connecting to their TV? And especially when you have shared homes, how do you know that who really has access to your data? So that was a that was a big problem. And the other thing is when you talk about like Sims, even on the next generations, those are usually controlled by data lakes. And I found so many people who didn't have VLANs and complete systems actually even connected to looking at the event logs. I tell people when you start looking at your critical third-party vendors, hopefully you did know who your third-party critical vendors are, it was scary because they really didn't know what was going on in their network. Again, what I did from a legal perspective is to go ahead and reach out to a lot of the clients and say, hey, here's the additional risk you're going to have to buy into so we can still do business with you. But not everybody did that. So hopefully they kind of answered the questions, but it's just, it's scary because it just, it just showed how much the IT asset management, software management, patch management is not in play. And it's very scary. And now we're seeing a lot of companies who are getting, getting breached in a variety of methods, not only from state sponsored, but we just saw SolarWinds and we've seen FireEye and we've seen a very other vendors who are actually going ahead and getting vulnerability issues right now. It's being exploited. And I think that's only going to be on steroids going forward. Yeah, I'd agree. I think SolarWinds was just indicative of sort of a post-COVID world. And obviously that one's kind of unique and it may not be fair to lump it in with COVID per se. But I think you're right. There's an uptick. There's a definite trend. There's been an increase in attacks. And what I saw with all the companies that I was working with was the zero trust readiness posture was everything from zero to 100. I saw the full spectrum. And, And to your point, Asset management, patching, <laughs> vulnerability, you know, know thyself is is the first commandment of any good framework, CSF, ISO, CIS, CSC20, whatever, you know, summarize all that, I, I identify phase and cycle as, as know thyself. And to your point, if you don't know yourself, how can you possibly move forward? I saw companies that had that in the bag. And I saw companies, to your point about like printers and, and TVs and things, companies that already had secure management and EDR software deployed such that they had full control over the USB ports. Somebody wanted to plug in a printer, it wouldn't even work. Even the degree of granularity, like this was one of the ones that floored me, was a company who was so prepared when the work from home happened and they had a global workforce and they had folks scattered to the four winds in in various countries around the world. In some cases, they were heading to villages, home to villages where there, there was no internet. And what they did was provided cellular dongles and their EDR control on the endpoint was such that they could still say disable read-write devices, but enable these dongles. And so, you know, full and complete control, right? True zero trust play, ready to go. I saw other companies who suddenly were faced with the fact that they had never even considered this. Work from home was not even an option at all. And those guys, you know, I feel sorry for everything they had to go through. But one of the bigger challenges, like to me, is coordinating with IT on this. It was bigger than a security challenge. I know some companies that suddenly found themselves sending desktop computers home, for example. Bandwidth, VPN decisions. Are you going to be forced to enable split tunneling simply because you're so desperate for bandwidth? Are you buying new VPN concentrators? I talked to one company a friend of mine worked at who, recognizing they desperately needed more VPN infrastructure, went to order enterprise gear and found out that the backlog was like three months or four months, something ridiculous because everybody was buying VPN gear. And they literally went and bought Soho VPN gear for their enterprise and were slapping up small office, home office concentrators everywhere they could just to keep their people connected. People were making crazy choices. So how much did you see in in terms of that coordination with IT, things like desktop, things like VPN, VDI, split tunnel, like, like how much... 
How much negotiating did you see security and IT having to do to get through that challenge? Yeah, I saw quite a lot. And like you, like you consult with quite a people that, you know, people would go ahead and say, yes, we're going to do full tunnel. Yes, we're going to do VDI. And then what it would be is, you know, the bandwidth takes up so much money. So we're going to do split tunnel and we're just not going to go ahead and tell the people <laughs> who we're doing business with that we're doing it. We're not going to do VDI because it costs much. We're going to use open VPN because we want to pay for licenses. We're not going to do proxy locks. So people can go ahead and go off the VPN. We have people who can go ahead and because we're not using zero trust, we have people who can go ahead and use their own personal computer to actually attach to all of of these assets. And then we also saw that added even a more complexity is because we want to run the business. And you and I talked a little bit before the show about that. Well, we're going to go ahead and the people who we saw made the most money in the company, didn't matter if it's because of the knowledge they have in seniority, we're going to go ahead and let them go. And so we have that, we have tribal knowledge was also gone. So I, that's what I said is, is auditors out there, you need to go back and really audit these, these companies. You might be willing to accept that risk for three months or four months, but you're exposed out there. You really need to go back and, and do third-party assessments. And when you do that, be very careful. I've seen quite a bit. I, I do full audit companies myself on a consultant basis. I don't trust their pictures. They could cherry pick. It could be the one, the one computer out there that they know that is, that's the, I've heard them call before. There's the auditor's computer and that, or that auditor server that we've hardened for the auditor to take a look at, but the other ones aren't. So if you end up having, you know, eight domain controllers, go ahead and get the names of those domain controllers and wait until it's in real time for you to name that main controller that they go on and then you can go ahead and make your tests on. Don't let them cherry pick. I think that's very dangerous right now. I've always thought it's dangerous to do. It's unethical in my book as well, but be careful of that. And then when you just mentioned, I, I just, you know, it's, there's not a day, a time it's not an hour go by that I, I don't have a chief information security officer, chief privacy officer, chief information um, officer, maybe chief technical officer who are like, I'm not only I'm scared about the company and the risk and things like that that are taken on, but I'm scared for, for my job and my, and my livelihood because it's putting my reputation on the line as well because things aren't being done that way. And so I think, you know, that's the one thing that companies need to be very cautious of. I totally get that if data doesn't flow, none of us get a paycheck. But if you, you have a breach, that should take you down as well too. So it can't be 100% about availability. You got to think about integrity and confidentiality and, and maybe you need to be a little bit more wise about which contracts you go after. But as we had retail and other sectors very quickly try and move things home because it could not be in a mall anymore, I think a lot of those guys are buying a lot more risk than they anticipated because what was in contracts, and I, I talked to a company about the other day, contracts protect you afterwards to go for legal. Just because in the contract that someone will, here's the data security amendment in the, in the contract that says thou shalt do X, Y, and Z. I've just seen it so many times that the companies aren't doing it that way. Patch within 24 hours or patch in four hours. Now, no, we blast images every 90 days. And you're like, but that's not what the contract says. Well, we'll deal with it if we get caught. So be careful of that. Right, right. And it's, it's interesting too, because certain vendors... It depends on what your role is and how much you're offering different services and what kinds of services you're offering. But but some of those vendors, they live and die by those contracts, where the contract is literally the the crux of everything. They could have an internal company policy 
and the contract says something different from the policy, they have to go with the contract. So some vendors honor those contracts and live by them and treat them as the governing laws that, that dictate everything and, and are the overarching law and overriding law, if you will, of the company's behaviors. And I've, I've, I've worked in environments where that's the case, where the contract truly, if you commit to 24, man, you're doing 24 kind of thing. And I've seen other environments, to your point, that that have been more lax. And it's interesting, you know, there's a, there's a whole other show that we recorded. My buddy Omkar Arasaratnam, he and I have got a project we're actually working on. This is a brief sidebar here for the listeners. They've already heard this show by the time by the time this one airs. But we're working on a supply chain model and method, a way of improving supply chain security for the for the consumer of the service to basically challenge the organizations. And it's to the point you're making where. Some of the questions that get asked get answered and, and sent away. And some of these questionnaires are so many questions that people just start responding to all the like questions in the same way. And it's a once a year or maybe once every two years audit and, and things can change in that time period. And the idea would be to, to make the questions more exacting, to minimize the number of questions and to instead rely on the tech stack to basically report on itself. And we're crafting a whole standard around that. So that's a whole nother uh, project that we're working on on the side right now, but ties very much into this conversation. You know, and I was just going to say on a point too, where even on the contracting, I've had people who are the ones who are reading the contract and they said, well, I, I signed off on it because we should be okay. And I'm like, we should be okay. You should know if we're going to be okay. And the one thing I like to do is if they have to do an assessment or something like that, go ahead and attach it to the contract. So if you go ahead and you do have an event that negates that contract and you're going to legal, you actually have a copy of the assessment that they signed off on. So you can show that, hey, the assessment on this date or these policies or procedures or the SOC 2 or PCI report, just make it as part of the contract because then you already have that evidence pile right there. And sometimes I can hold companies a little bit more true. I don't like doing business with, with companies who say, hey, I'm not even going to show you the SOC 2 report. I'm not going to show you the PCI report. I'm not going to show you the high trust. I'm not going to let you see my full report. Why? Why are you scared? right? If you are doing things on the up and up, it shouldn't matter that we go ahead and that corrective action plan or those reports are actually attached as being part of the full contract because it's it's being transparent. Yep. Ross Young over at the CISO Trade, Tradecraft podcast uh, is a buddy of mine. And he's actually, I think the model he's using is basically the consumer nutrition labels on food. <laughs> that, that it's almost like businesses need to have the, the InfoSec nutrition label. You know, it's like, you know, how many findings are you working against right now that are high, medium, low? Do you actually have such and such certification? If so, what were the negative findings and what are you doing to address? And having basically just complete transparency on the part of all the, all the vendors that are part of anybody's supply chain and having that kind of a model. This is a model he's toying with and proposing. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking over his artifacts right now. And I don't know if it'll ever catch. That level of transparency is so radical. But the idea, the premise, the spirit behind that, I think, is really strong, right? This idea that it's like, guys, if you have your SOC 2 cert, you passed. Why are you hiding the rest of it? Obviously, there's going to be findings that you're working on. That's going to be the case everywhere. Go ahead and open the kimono and let's, let's you know, look at this jointly, right? And this goes back to Omkar and I having this strategy of, Rather than the company reporting it, what if the tech stack itself is just reporting on its own status and stature, relying less and less on humans filling out forms and more and more on the tech stack to actually report its own health externally via via API? I mean, if you think about a CICD pipeline and the SaaS architectures that you see today, 
generally speaking, documentation is no longer a separate, discrete artifact of physical paper. Documentation is part and parcel of the pipeline, and you just communicate with it directly. And as changes are made, documentation is updated real time. It's all done through APIs, right? Self-security reporting could be the same, right? And that's that's kind of the the way we're headed with that one. And to add that, just because we're talking about the, the supply chain, is is I encourage everybody out there to ask also, besides we talked about what is the corrective action plan or management action plan or plan of action, milestones, depending on which sector you're on, they're all three the same thing. But ask them for what is the end of life, end of service of your equipment. And we've seen critical failures, not only within companies, but we've seen it in the stacks above them, because that's going to affect you. And so I asked for that as well, too, because I have seen in this past year where there's equipment that you're like, oh, my God, that those have been end of service, end of life, for, or it could be an OS for five years, six years, and you have not patched that or you have not replaced that. And then it has put me in jeopardy. And so also make sure you have those listening, then keep those companies honest that you know, you're supposed to get off that OS, right? And you're negatively going to affect us. And then put a penalty in there. If you don't, it's going to cost you this amount of money. Because I'll tell you, it's interesting when you put those penalties in there and it costs you $25,000 or $250,000 a day, depending on what's the size of the company. They get motivated, yeah. Yeah, they, they get motivated. It's what banks do. And so you really have to build those in. So I think you have to be really smarter about your contracts. And if a company really, 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 really won't do it, Go to their competitor because I would think that that makes me pause anytime when someone says, ah, nah, you know, I won't keep that stuff patched, you know, and get reporting in there. So they have to go ahead. And even if they don't do it, then you have every month they reported to me that they they were doing this. And it gives you more teeth to go against them later on. Unfortunately, if there's a breach or something like that, you got to put the onus to keep them honest. You shouldn't have to. Years ago, you didn't have to do it as much. But I think in today's world, unfortunately, people aren't being as... I would just say for myself, they're just not being as integrity as they really should be. I think you should be able to reach out to a client or a partner and saying, hey, this is the challenge we're having right now to be able to maintain this level of security or compliance because of X, Y, and Z. Maybe like you said before, we can't get this equipment in, but this is how I am mitigating the risk. So do it with eyes wide open because it is a cyber war, right? The bad guys only have to be successful once. We have to be successful all the time. And having a piece of equipment or having personnel fail you means that we're both in jeopardy on both sides of the supply chain. So you should just be upfront and honest with each other about what is the risk that we're willing to to put up with, compensating controls until we can get it go ahead and, and get a little more shirt up because we're in a cyber war. Yeah, I, I hear you on that one. And I'm, I'm thinking back to some of the experiences I had during covid Explaining to folks and, and and back to the transparency and integrity. It's like, look, here's what we've done. Here's what we're doing. Here's the technical controls we already had in place. Here's an excellent and elegant zero trust story already ready to go. But then there's the fact that you've got workers at home. And, and you know, at work, maybe you're doing things like, you know, I'm picturing a, a clean room where everybody has to wear the bunny suit and has to leave personal effects behind and blah, blah, blah. And, and now you have folks doing similar type of work from home. Obviously, clean room is a bad example there, but you get the idea. You could be working from home in, in, in what is now obviously a more relaxed situation. To your point, family members could be there. You could be using your cell phone and taking pictures of the screen. Like, like these risks have increased. As soon as you scatter your workforce to the four winds, some of your people and process controls are no longer there. And you can have the best tech stack and the best zero trust story in the world and still have those changes. And so you have honest conversations about that. 
And I remember sitting down and talking to folks and helping them work through these kinds of situations. And it's like, just if you're the vendor, get with your customers and let them understand you've got process, you've had your employees sign papers, you know, committing to certain behaviors, et cetera, et cetera. You've done extra additional training, like everything you've done to address and offset some of this people and process load that is represented by COVID you know, just just do it, be transparent, be honest, and share. And lo and behold, the vast bulk of the world was perfectly okay with that stuff. I alluded earlier to, you know, hearing stories of some clients that were just refusing to work with vendors and saying, you can't send your people home. And I think some companies basically were forced to keep some folks in the office. But for the most part, I, I found that honesty and transparency won the day and, and everybody was willing to recognize, okay, so we've onboarded some new risk here. But we're doing what we can to mitigate it, and and we're not oblivious to it, and we're working through it. No, absolutely. And and one thing is that people, when we talked about work from home and then going back in the office, pretty much people who are like in my type of roles, thirty percent of us like I never want to go back into an office again. And then there's eighty percent of the regular workforce rather not go back into the office again. And one thing that the companies always have to be aware of is is there's a whole slew of lawsuits coming just because we talked about COVID about people who potentially got sick because they were in offices and people were in offices too long period of time, or did you, did you rush people back and either they got sick or loved one come sick? So there's thousands of, of lawsuits there. And there's also thousands of whistleblower lawsuits coming because of some of the, the risk and compliance and, and privacy and security and, and things along those lines that the companies were willing to kind of, you know, do wink, wink or look the other way. And so I was looking at that just over the last couple of weeks about all the new lawsuits that are coming out. So I think this is going to be interesting year in 2021, as well as we see that more GDPR fines and and now that we see that HIPAA and stuff like that, that people had free pass, they don't. It, 2021 is going to be a time of of a lot, the reckoning. Yeah, we should call it the 2021 is going to be the reckoning on people who maybe should have taken more time to kind of do the right thing in 2020 versus only looking at company staying afloat and putting money in your pocket. Maybe not have been the wise choice long-term. I've heard a lot of COVID conversations and even a few post-COVID conversations, but this notion of the reckoning, I think we have a show title here. Well, listen, we're getting close to the end of the show here, and I've got a, a question I always like to ask every guest, which is what keeps you going in InfoSec? What motivates you to get out of bed in the morning and, and do more of it? Well, I always like working with companies that like to go to the next level of excellence and do the greater good from business process and and so one of the things that I tell people out there, I, I'm looking for my paid board role. I'd like to be in a paid role coming up. I said I do have a, a book that I'm working on. And then I'm looking at a, a, for a new opportunity that's going to be challenging for me with company that's not like entrenched in an old school business culture and, and doesn't play lip service as we talked about in compliance, privacy, security, but in reality, and that's driving to 2025. So that's what keeps me going. I like to, to be a positive ripple effect in the world, not only with my security, but people can look at me as, hey, what does Rebecca do from a day-to-day -day standpoint to try and be a better human being? And can that encourage me to, to do the same? I've heard a lot of grounding in reality this show, and I've also heard a lot of hope for the future, and it's lovely to meet somebody for whom these are one and the same. I think hope is a, is a good thing, and I don't think it is untoward or, or off-kilter from some of what we know the world has to offer. I think hope is there, and I'm so grateful to see you still have it. Now, what are you looking forward to in cyber itself? Well, speaking engagements, doing articles like that, I think 2021, just seeing what's going to happen in 2021 based on 2020 that's going to allow us as InfoSec privacy and compliance and risk management grow because we saw 
when I talked to a lot of CISOs and stuff like that, unfortunately, we had an opportunity that if companies could put the money towards security and privacy compliance, we saw that we could have like really pushed our agendas forward very quickly. There was an awareness of those agendas, but instead money went into features and benefits of products. So we actually saw from a security privacy compliance area, we actually saw that we went backward a couple of steps. So I'm hoping in 2021 that we start getting the money and the personnel back in the right positions so we can actually see that we can make leaps and bounds and that we will be coming a better voice of sanity as we look at this global force going forward. That's my hope. That's my dreams. But again, I like to be a thought leader and and person who's trying to make that strong difference. Hopes, dreams, and more importantly, sanity. I love it. Dr. Rebecca Wynn, thank you so much for coming out to the Cyber Ranch. And thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. <laughs>